better spot What was so was so What was not was not Now I am a man World have changed a lot Something's nearly so Others nearly not There are times I almost think I am not sure of what I absolutely know Very often find confusion in conclusion I concluded long ago In my head are many facts that as a student I have studied to procure In my head are many facts of which I wish I was more certain I am sure Is a puzzlement what to tell a growing son What, for instance, shall I say to him of women? Shall I educate him on the ancient lines? Shall I tell the boy as far as he is able to respect his wives and love his concubines? Shall I tell him everyone is like the other and the better one of two is really neither? If I tell him this, I think he won't believe it And I nearly think I won't believe it either When my father was a king, he was a king who knew exactly what he knew And his brain was not a thing forever swinging to and fro and fro and to Shall I then be like my father and be willfully unmovable and strong? Or is better to be right, or am I right when I believe I may be wrong? Shall I join with other nations in alliance? If allies are weak, am I not best alone? If allies are strong with power to protect me, might they not protect me out of all I own? Is a danger to be trusting one another? One will seldom want to do what other wishes. But unless someday somebody trusts somebody, there'll be nothing left on earth excepting fishes. Sometimes I think that people going mad. Sometimes I think that people not so bad. If my Lord in heaven Buddha showed the way, every day I try to live another day. If my Lord in heaven Buddha showed the way, every day I do my best for one more day. What? is a puzzlement. Same old time. 
just uh, coming up to 427 and that means it's time for me to proceed to vacate the premises for living writers please stay tuned for that well the last set contained the following a song by holler called no vacancy then a puzzlement by robert merrill from the production the king and i dias futuros by sultan 32 and that set started off with a song called Train Spotting by Transgroove Paramount. Okay, well, I got enough time to leave you with one last song, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Please stay tuned for the Living Writers Show. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this music as much as I have enjoyed playing it for you today. Everyone, have a good rest of your day. Bye now.
petit côté qui caché Civilisation pas manier C'est où ça l'a mené La peau n'a pas qu'à trouver Doit de nous que goûter En qui j'en l'a naticé afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to the Living Writers Program. And today in the studio, um, I'm so pleased uh, to have Um Akpan here. Um, um, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers. Thank you, T. <laughs> this, this isn't your... Um, you've been on the, the show like yes, a while ago, yes, right? When, yes. you were, when you were here. Yours is different, so... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we're going to be celebrating the... Um, We've got, let's see, it's really, it's ex- exciting times here because um, Um is actually on his book tour for his first collection of short stories, Say You're One of Them, um, published by Little Brown. Um, so Say You're One of Them. You can go and pick up a copy of this this debut collection of short stories, a really wonderful. I just finished reading it, Um. Thank you, T. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for thank you. Thank you for being here. We're we're sort of um let's see, this I should mention as well that um this is a pre taped show. Uh, it's June twelfth and Um's in town to read it Shaman Drum. Uh which is gonna be sort of uh that'll be a nice uh, does it feel like some sort of full circle Thing reading there this evening? Yeah, yeah. I still remember um, fall 2004 when I came to Michigan to study and going there to hear people read. 
<laughs> many, many times while you were yes, here, right? Yes, that was my first time, so I never could have thought I would be doing it mm. someday. And, and here we are, June 12, yes. 2008, yes. only a few years down the road. Um, well, Um, um now I'll read, uh, I'll read the your bio from uh, in the back of your your collection of short stories. Say you're one of them. Okay. Um, um Akpan was born in Ikot Akpan Ada in southern Nigeria. After studying philosophy and English at Creighton and Gonzaga Uni- Universities, he studied theology for three years at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa. He was ordained as a Jesuit priest in 2003 and received his MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan (laughs) in 2006. (laughs) Go blue. Um, There's a bit more here. My parents... (laughs) Okay, no laughing from me here. My parents' bedroom, a story included in this, his first collection, was one of five short stories by African writers chosen as finalists for the Kane Prize for African Writing. In 2007, Um began a teaching assignment at a seminary in Harare, Zimbabwe. Yes. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> Is all this factual? <laughs> um, even though it's a book of fiction, I hope I'm getting my facts right here. Yes, Oom. the bio is real. <laughs> uh, well, it's a great bio. Uh, let's see. Well, let's start. Um, so you are on this book tour and, uh, and you were just, uh, let's see, you've been in Chicago and New York and after Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, you've got Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. on deck as well. Yes. Is that how is it um, like going around and and reading? What is what is the? And you've been. I, I also should add that um, you've, you're in many June issues of magazines ranging from O Magazine to Vogue. Um, you're just uh, the Wall Street Journal is a yeah. summer pick. Yeah. Um, you're, you're everywhere this June. Yes. Um. What what's it like? It's it's crazy. It it hasn't sunk in yet, you know. <laughs> to, to to see your to see your picture in your in your in your review in People magazine, and it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I'm still trying to trying to take it in. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe. Well, it's a fetching photo as well. <laughs> it's very very nice. Um, yes. Yeah, so you're you're on the summer summer uh, read list for multiple lists out there, and I'm I'm sure book groups. And so you're man of man of the 2008 summer. I don't know. <laughs> Um, all right, I'll stop going on and on about it. I don't mean to. I feel like I might be embarrassing you slightly <laughs> with my exuberance. Um, uh, so, um, I also wanted, before we got started on talking about your book directly, um, well, in the book and several stories, the World Cup of 1994 comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm wondering, are you having any time in this busy couple of weeks on tour to catch any of the European Cup. Are you kidding? I've just finished a game. Your show is depriving me of a key game. Which one? Which one is it? I, I think it's uh, between Poland and... Uh, oh, because they played Germany earlier. Austria. Oh, yeah, so it's Austria. I, watched, I watched Germany versus uh, Croatia. Yes. Yes, but I, I'm happy Was to this- sacrifice this for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, right back at you, because yesterday yes. I was still preparing, and yes. so I sacrificed yes. Portugal, Portugal versus the oh, Czech man. Republic. So, yeah. But how come you never come to play with the MFA team when it's I was here? What, I know. You never came. We, have a, we had a team. 
I, you know, Um, you're not the first person to sort of, not that you're harassing me, but to mention it. Yes. <laughs> I think it might be because I'm, I'm better suited to sitting in the pub with a pint in my hand, unfortunately. Yeah, the ladies were kicking me like mad those days. That was, would that be Charlotte and Darji? And, uh, I don't want to mention names. <laughs> <laughs> They're my friends. Right. Well, they were kicking me. Right. Oh, you mean literally? Not, yeah, oh, on okay. the field. Tackling me. <laughs> well, tackling is completely fair. It's fair game. Fair game <laughs> I on, see. On the pitch. Don't worry. I'll tackle you later on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> promises, promises. Well, um, so what was, um, what role of, have you played football all your life? Is that one of the things, like you started out as like a, a, a young, a yes, boy, a yes. young boy? Yes. Um, it's the sort of game you, you play. You begin quite young if you're going to do good in the game. Um, so, yeah, I've played since primary school, secondary school for my village team, for the seminary team. Um, so, yeah, and from time to time, I still go out there to play, though I'm very far from being in shape now. No. <laughs> Although that's that that's sport is something where... It's just constant back and forth. It must be one of the... You have to be so fit. Yeah. Yeah, watching them play. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so thanks for thanks for coming and doing taping the show, <laughs> even though you're missing um, this match. But maybe maybe we can watch some tomorrow if oh, you're in town. We shall see. Okay, we shall see how this how this conversation yes, goes, right? Yes, you get Everything, the point. Everything's on the table. Well, um, so also, before we go any further, I wanted to mention, because you... You might, and tell me if you're you're tired of talking about this, but it's in your your bio that we read. And mm-hmm. in 2003, you were ordained mm-hmm. a Jesu- Jesuit priest, mm-hmm. um, and and so uh, that seems like uh, obviously something that is is completely uh, defining uh, part of your identity. Um, is that true? To, is that true to say, like the the being uh, a priest and being a writer, being a Jesuit priest and a writer, yes, being a Jesuit priest and a yeah, and a, mm-hmm. and a writer, um, because you were just in the New Yorker on in the June eleventh uh, weekly uh, mm. the issue, um, and and for that it was uh, the faith. It was they were doing faith and doubt. Looked mm-hmm. looked like the the title of the and other writers were also asked to contribute, and that and in that you your your it was an essay, so mm-hmm. it wasn't um, a fictional piece. It was actually an essay, a nonfiction piece from That's your life, true. yeah, um, called Communion, mm-hmm. and so. <laughs> so faith and the New Yorker and doubt and writing. Um, how? Because the New Yorker was also a, a, an issue, a magazine that, in, in a sense, has been good to you because it published your first short story in the uh, U.S. In the U.S. Oh, in the U.S. Yes. Okay. Nice distinction. Yes. Where was your first short story? It was published in Nigeria. Okay. It, yes. What was it in? Um, what What was it in a newspaper? I'm feeling it was like a I realization. read. I I got into um, a daily newspaper and they published me uh, in their Saturday fiction. Uh, page they serialized me for three months so was the story already completed and then they broke it into a serial yes. format yes oh okay yes and you say it was a realization 
Yeah. It, what it, does that mean? It, it was serialization. They serialized oh, the Oh, oh, I thought, but know, I thought you story. meant it was a realization when they, they chose the story. Uh, you didn't say no, that? No, no, that's oh, not what I said. They oh, serialized sorry. the story. I got you know, that. Week to week, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, but okay. since you are pushing in that direction, Push. that's the first <laughs> time I tried fiction. You know, and and somebody liked it. I wasn't good at it, but I, the suspense was good. Uh, but I started there to, you know, to write and to learn and to teach myself until I came to Michigan. And what what were you writing before fiction then? Like, what was your... I was writing uh, articles, um, poetry. I, you know, like this kind of stuff I wrote in communion, you know, in the New Yorker, you know, recently. Um a reflection about you know myself about what I was seeing you know that sort of thing that's what I was doing and where were were those pieces being published as yes. well one was published here in Nigeria, in uh, the US in um, America it's a Catholic magazine in New York um, City run by Jesuits and another piece was published in uh, the UK by um, it's called Jesuit and Friends and then I published in Hekima Review in Kenya. And then I published in uh, some church newspapers in Nigeria. And um, there's another magazine out here in the U.S. whose so, name I can't remember. Yeah. So a, quite a few publications then mm-hmm. at that time. But those were the, the nonfiction pieces, like yes. the essays that you and were doing. And the poems, yeah. Okay. And so... Um, and you were doing that while you were also going to school, like you had you for philosophy and for religion. Yeah, I was a seminarian while I was doing this, preparing for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how uh, did you, do you feel like it was something that um, because it was a sort of exploratory writing by the mm-hmm. sounds of it and, and personal reflection in some ways? Was it something that um, was a necessary step to becoming? ordained as well no it wasn't uh, it's something i like to do and i did on my own mm. um i like writing i like stories and i i feel i i want to say something about places i've been to um situations i have experienced my joys my frustrations um i just i, I want to tell stories i want to write yeah. So. Yes, and so they could be stories and essays of of your your life, like the present, writing that way, or it could be fictionalized stories. Yeah, but you have to remember when I started writing poetry and uh, articles, I did not know I could write fiction. So I only started knowing when my first um, short story was published in two thousand. But how did you make that leap? Because it's not about. I mean, failure. <laughs> Failure. Failure taught me this one. I, you know, when I finished my college degree here in the U.S., I went back to Nigeria. My hope was I was going to get a column in a newspaper. I had published two articles in that newspaper way back in 1992-93. So I came to the U.S., I got back to Nigeria in 97, and I said, oh, I'm going to get a column. But how do you get a column in a newspaper? Yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, so I said to myself, well, I'm going to write four articles a month to the newspaper. I'll write a bunch, like four, package them, send the package to the 
newspaper hoping they'll publish them weekly. And the next month, by four months, I would have had 16 articles out there. Then I would show up and say to the editor, I am Hello. he. Hello. <laughs> Give me a column. So I, I, I tried that. I read the first four articles sent them over. I was writing the second one when I realized that they've not published any of the first ones. <laughs> right. But was that, was, an, was that an integral part of your plan, though, that they started? Because I thought you just wanted them to read them and then be impressed by no, your diligence no, no. and your tenacity. I wanted. I, I was dreaming they would publish them and people would make comments and like them and then right. my name would be out there. But they, you know, they, they were not publishing them, so I stopped. Uh, okay. And then I read the uh, fiction column one, you know, page one Saturday. And I was like, oh, oh, there's fiction here. And I think I can, I can do what this guy is doing. I can write better than this guy. That's how I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started okay. writing. It took me months. You know, I, I was able to set, you know, to set... Um, you know, to set up the, you know, the the suspense and the tension in the story. Um, and I took in the story on a Wednesday. The, three days later, Saturday, they published it. Oh, wow. So I... Well, that's like a, a great... That, <laughs> if that's not like affirmation, I don't know what is. Okay. So I got, I, I became very crazy, very excited and started writing like mad. Yes. Yeah. But my stories were, they were far from, you know... Far from what you see now, I before then I had not been to any workshop, so I just you know learned on my I learned on my own and did it, and then I started writing. By the time I came to Michigan, you know you know like four years later, I had tons and tons of stories and novels in progress, and Michigan really helped me, you know established writers or good teachers really sat me down and said, well, this is how you create tension. This is how you slow down. This is how characterization works. This is how you, you know, you change point of view. Um, you are too political. you got to make it work first. The story. story. Yes. You know, let's take a break here, Um, because I want to talk about that. That is like <laughs> the hot topic, man. <laughs> but we, uh, you're listening to Living Writers. Um Akpan, his book, Say You're One of Them. We'll be right back. Stand up and be a man 
just joining us. Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today on Living Writers, Um Akpan is here um, with his his book, his his first collection, Out with Little Brown. Say you're one of them. Um, that's such a great title too. It's so it's so great, and it's and it's interesting that you you um it's it's um. It's a directive from the mother in the final story of the collection, My That's Parents' right. Bedroom. That's right. Yeah, my, it wasn't the title I wanted for the book at the beginning. What so, was the original? Uh, my, my original title was Fattening for Gabon. Okay, which is a huge anchor story yeah. in the collection. Uh, they said to me they wanted something unique. And I thought fattening for your Gabon was unique enough. But they, you know, they came back and said, ah, well, uh, we don't like that title very much. We we want we would like you to pick another title, and they came out with a list of phrases from the book, oh. and uh, I chose this. But I've come to really like this. I've come to really like this, so I'm fine. Yes, it. Is, I mean, yeah, I, I actually love it as as a title. It's it's great. You have great titles of the the stories, like luxurious hearses, like <laughs> before even reading the story, and then and then it's great because then there's a quote from the Quran there and um which is a bridge from the story before it uh what mm-hmm. language is that you know yeah. kind of coming through and um but luxurious hearses because it's chilling but weird as yeah. well so it's yeah. uh, which which doesn't let you at all on to what you're in for <laughs> but i don't mean i feel like i'm speaking abstractly here so i'll just cut that let's let's go back um to what we were saying before that that break that we took with fiction like um what does fiction allow you to do once you were like you know i can do this what does it allow you to do that the the essays the nonfiction, or the poems like what yeah, yeah, I, I get your, I wait, I get your question. Um, it allows me to enter into or get the reader into the shoes of the character. You know, without, you know, being doctrinaire about it. Uh, I don't have to define anything. I just have to show. You know, I don't have to. You know, say this is how people should live. I have to show how they are not living well, and you know, in that sense, you know, the the picture and the vision are fused, and people get a sense of this is it's, it's almost like defining something via negativa. You know, mm. you know, this is it is not this, it is not this, it is not that. That's the picture I'm showing you, and you know, people now get to say. It is not right, maybe, for people to live like this. You know, there's yeah. something wrong here. And, you know, the beauty of what could have been, the grace, flashes of grace, you know, begin to begin to show you what could have been, but is not. Yes, yeah. and without without sort of that, maybe the, the guiding hand so apparent, if it was nonfiction, yeah. of like that, that writer's voice yeah. in there yeah. mm-hmm. saying, I'm your filter, even if you're still showing it, because in communion, it's it it reads like a story, um, because it's not as if it's uh, didactic in that you're putting all this personal reflection in it. You you kind of set it up, and yeah. and leave us with the moment with the street kids. Yeah, it's exactly how the New Yorker approached me and you know spoke about it. They said they wanted 
a snapshot of faith, a faith a moment. A snapshot. Yeah, a snapshot, a faith moment. Uh, it should be 700 to 800 words. Uh, and I was like, it's flattering first to be asked by the New Yorker to write something for them. You know, but it's also a cause for panic. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> said, uh, Why? Oh, How oh, so? <laughs> yeah. What about if I can't put it together? You know, that sort of thing. Oh, the New Yorker now. Oh. And something as huge as faith. Yeah. Because you're also sort of like, here I am representing Jesuit priests. You know what I mean? Like Church. Yeah, the church. Church. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, said, I said to my editor at the New Yorker, okay, give me one and a half weeks to see whether I can cobble something together. I'll send you the rough draft. If it works, you tell me, you know, it works, and then I will refine and, you know, and work this, work on this. So I, you know, I thought about the different, you know, different moments. And then um, this came together, and I... Uh, I mean, they did not ask me to write fiction. They wanted me to do autobiography or, you know, biography or something real. And that's, you know, that's what I did. And had you, was that like, have you been working so much in the fictional realm that it was hard to switch gears? Or are you constantly writing in, in sort of all the... Uh... No, I've not written any reflection for a long time now. So when they asked me, I just... It, it wasn't a big shift for me, you know. I, you know, I remember what happened clearly, and uh, I, I, you know, I wrote about it. So I, I'm very thankful to God that I was able to put it together. I, you know, when they asked, I was flattered. Then I, I then I panicked. Then I'm like, right. oh my goodness, can, can this work? Well, it certainly, it certainly came, it certainly came together um so so going back for a moment where um you were you were saying that when you came to michigan you had so much you had like a great like many starts and bodies a novel many stories in progress um and and some of the the people here the established writers and and teachers they um they said fiction also allows you to to not maybe be so political because I, I think if I'm saying this correctly it seemed like you said at the time maybe one of what you were infusing the stories with uh, was a lot of the political and and the, they were they all set in Africa in different countries in Africa yes um, you know the the two New Yorker stories um, my parents' bedroom and an Xmas feast. Xmas feast, yes. Both of them are in this collection. They bookend the, the collection. Y- yes, yep. those are the stories I, I, when I applied to Michigan, I included them in the package. You know, um, they were not what you are seeing now. I, I, I have reworked, you know, them many times. In fact, an Xmas feast was rejected by the New Yorker twice before I came to Michigan. So at Michigan, I learned a lot. Some craft. Yeah, craft, craft. And um, I remember um, our teacher, Eileen Pollock. Yes. You know Eileen. Yes, I know okay. She was my first teacher here and very gracious to me. Um, other teachers were gracious too, but since she was the first and really helped me, I am very indebted to her. You know, she, she introduced the class. I think that semester we could bring in 
you know, 60 pages or 70 pages of work twice, you know, to, you know, to class or in two installments to class. And I, I remember she was gracious enough. I ended up bringing in a hundred pages because I brought a novella in that was 77 pages and I brought in a, my parents' bedroom. And I, I'm like, is it going to be like this for two years? I have lots of things. How do I get these good people to read my stuff and critique and help me? So I went one day to see Eileen and I said to her, this is my problem. Even if you give me four years here, I would never exhaust what I have. I feel I need to show them to somebody. Could you help me? And she said, yes, bring in another hundred pages, you know, outside of class. Wow. And I did. Um, and she read these pages diligently and said to me, rework this story and send it to the New Yorker. And it was, you know, an Xmas feast. And I was like, well, I'm not very sure. I just want to really, you know, sit back these two years and work. And she kept pushing. So by January of 2005, I sent out, you know, the story after reworking, you know, the story and the visiting. You know how the visiting writers help you look at your work? And a man from Plowshares, Don Lee, looked at my work and made suggestions and uh, Eileen herself helped me <clears throat> excuse me i remember she even helped me you know in writing the cover letter i had no idea how to write a cover letter i studied philosophy in school in college so i thought to submit anything you gotta set it up like uh you're submitting a it's something uh, a piece on logic yeah yeah so you said this is what it is a, B, C, D, I, the reasons and summary. So that's why I, I described my story in the cover letter. And I was like, no, 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 no. no it's not done. So she, she really, she really, she really helped. She really helped me. Okay, on that note, Um, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Um Akpan, say you're one of them. We'll be back. Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. And today, Um Akpan, say you're one of him, them. Say you're one of him. No, say you're one of them. Are you one of them, T? <laughs> wow. I mean, now I know what that finally means after getting to my parents' bedroom. I hope I'm not one of them because it's so <laughs> chilling. But anyway, that's God, that's my second time. I, yeah, the many of these stories uh, really shook me up, Um, um mm. which is good. Um, but this also is it, it makes me feel like you had definitely reasons for wanting to write these stories, and part of them were 
not just the storytelling itself, not just the nature of story, although I know you believe in that thoroughly because you've made that clear already um, this afternoon. But um, I'm wondering if there, like, it seems like there's a tension between the story itself and then the context, the context for your, your perceived readership um, filling in like what, uh, maybe historical background or like a political setting that uh, that maybe some of the readers have only seen glimpses of on uh, CNN or or you know maybe not as they don't maybe they've never visited and uh, a country in Africa or you know this so that tension between telling the story itself and and giving people context uh, how do you balance that? If there's tension, maybe I'm just... <laughs> yeah, uh, for me, <clears throat> excuse me, even in my village where stories are told and repeated and, you know, over and over again, um, stories are told for a purpose. You understand? Yeah, whether it's to make people laugh, that's... There's something in that story that makes people laugh, and it it fulfills a function. Uh, so for me, I I'm not able. I'm not one of those who believes that uh, um, art has no purpose. I believe there's a purpose, you know, to art. There's a purpose to my story telling. What is the content of my story? Even when I'm exploring within myself, there's a part of me I don't even know within me. And I'm, you know, I'm searching for something. If I'm communicating with myself and getting myself to come to say, oh, so this is what could have happened. I feel I have communicated. And the fact that, you know, we always say in my place, a story needs hearers, an audience. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, it's communication. There's something to be communicated. Um, is it communicated well or is it not communicated well? It's a you know it's a, it's a different thing, and that's why my you know my teachers were like, you know, let's see the characters, show us faces, okay, what are the important moments, and when I think about it now, it's like, if you go to a shallow stream, and you have rocks, the rocks are not flowing with the stream; they're just stagnant, okay. Now they make you, it possible for there to be a stream. Yeah, but if you have like boulders, you know, in the in the in the water, they stand out of the water. Okay. But if the water, if the stream is is a, is a big body of water and it's moving, um, the boulders move along, you know, with you know the 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 current, you know, in the in the water. And I I often look back and think this is what my teachers were trying to get me to to do. So the boulders will be like the political things. You know the historical things, and because the story is larger than this polit politics, so everything moves. the The current is able to carry the boulders, you know, along. That's how I I, I, I look I look at it. I see. Okay, mm -hmm. I think I understand what you mean um, mm -hmm. with that. Um, so so the boulders you f you feel like they're I important because but they're not obstacles and that they can be moved yes. by the stream yes. because some some rocks don't seem to move apparently but I mm -hmm. see I see what you're mm -hmm. what you're saying about the ones that can be carried by the force of the story and why so so that's the way you 
preserve the integrity of the story itself because that's the by keeping yes. the prime part on the, the the what you're telling like the story the yes. characters and the 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 scenes or the moments yes uh, you see i i came to learn here that my stories need to work as stories first before they can be a vehicle for some yes, communication yes that's what i mean they have to work as stories first and anybody can read it and, and not feel it's propaganda. You understand? So, you, you know, I, I had to learn to set the stories up in such a way that you, anybody can get into it and know this is a family. And I come from a family. And you come from a family. And whether it's in Russia or in Alaska or in Annabelle, uh, it's a family we are dealing with. And we and we. we we both love and hate our families. There are people in our families we use. There are people we are not close to. There are people we are so struggling to connect after all these years. And so whether it's street people, they have the same problem. They love each other. They also use each other. Okay. So those are the things that I needed to do. And my teachers here were very, you know, I remember Eileen saying to me, if you just get into the politics, you are using these children. And the bigger forces of life have already used them as pawns. What are you doing joining forces with these big corporations? Why don't you let us see their faces, their humanity? Even if it's a baby, a baby has conflict. When it's hungry, when he's hungry, he cries. We, it takes the mother a while to get to know, okay, the child is crying because of hunger. And once the food has been given to the baby, the baby keeps quiet and is jolly jolly again. So Eileen was like, you ha we, your narrators have to have their own conflict. Because when I started writing, there were just voices n telling these stories. You know, so I learned... And were all the voices, were the stories coming to you the way to tell them? Were they... Because in this collection, say you're one of them, the, the narrators are all in a, their children's voices, ranging from um, about six, seven years or six, six to, to 16. Yes. Yeah, 16 being the oldest yes. in luxurious hearses, which mm -hmm. is also the most overtly political story mm -hmm. in the collection. Mm -hmm. So why why the children's voices? Is that how these stories came to you or the... Uh... No, I made a decision. Uh, when I started, I wasn't writing about children. I was writing about adults. And then I looked and I realized that I had not seen then, maybe the, you know, there is or the... Yeah, maybe there's... I had not seen any collection of short stories that dealt with children's issues and how children were processing the conflicts. And it, so the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I can do this. Maybe this is what I should be trying to do and trying to set my stories in different countries. And I listed the, you know, some of the conflicts in Africa, the things that bother me. And I thought I could you know, work on them. Many things bother me. I, you know, I'm not able to write about them, you know, but, you know, I listed the, you know, the, the things and so if I said street children, you know, the focus now would narrow to where is this a big, big issue in Africa? And in East Africa, it's a big issue. So it had to be either Kenya or Uganda or Tanzania. So I picked Kenya. 
if I said um, um, uh, Christian religious, Christian Muslim conflict, Nigeria. of course, my country Nigeria is boiling with that all the time. So it, I, it, I said it in Nigeria. If I said child uh, trafficking, um, there are many countries in West Africa are involved in and uh, even Sudan and, you know, some countries in Southern Africa. But, I, you know, I picked, you know, Benin Republic, you know. So the stories came together gradually. I was experimenting, exploring, um, trying to write the stories first before going to do research. That's how I, why? I work. Why? Oh, yes. Because why? the story is not research. The story is the relationship between people. For me, that's what is the most important part of a story. How characters, you know, are seen and relate and feel and react. For me, that's the story. And I, I usually, okay, I, if I say um, street people, I try to think about what street people do and how they live on the street. And I come up with a story that dramatizes, you know, that. And then I try to research you know, what do they speak like? So I change the dialogue, you know, to the patois, you know, the, you know, they speak. I do the research on that. I try to situate that story because if you're going to set a story in Annabel and you invoke Annabel, you mu- I think, I think you must make it feel like Annabel. Otherwise, <laughs> don't mention Annabel. Exactly. That yeah. it should be placeless. Yes. Yeah. Or you can create your city like Faulkner. Nobody will hold you to anything in that. You create your city, not a problem. Yes, you know, as long as it's vivid. As it's long vivid. as you know you're confident yes. in your yes. details yes. And, your, and your own images That's that come true. to you. That's true. But if you now said Annabelle and you said University of Michigan and people come to the union, that's the, you know, they come to the union and there is a big mask in your story. Anybody who goes to Michigan says, what is this? <laughs> right. Unless you're able to shape that story in such a way that people know immediately there's something you are critiquing Because otherwise here. they won't trust you. Yeah, they won't trust what you're saying. And, and all those who went to Michigan, you know, since that place is like a shrine for the <laughs> Michigan <laughs> students. <laughs> so, so I always try to do that. If I set my story in Nairobi, I try to make it as much as I can feel like Nairobi. If I set it in Rwanda, I have to go after, you know, as I'm writing or after writing, I'll go and learn something about the culture that I need to express in the story. So, a lot of it was, but you get the skeleton of the story with the imagination of, yes. of what the story is. But yes. then, does this mean that then in one of these later parts, Um, that you actually, um, then did you speak to children? Did you try to get the cadence, not only of their patois, but the of how children speak or so that you felt confident in the voices of the children. No, I remember what I, uh, how I spoke as a child. Okay. So that's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that long ago. Yes, I didn't I mean re- anything by that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was nine, I was 10, I was seven. So I, I do, but what I also do is I play a lot with kids, not in those countries. Kids are the same everywhere. They yes. ask a lot of questions. And many things we learn as kids or see or experience as kids, we have no words for them. We have no knowledge of the full reality of that until we are 16 and we're like, 
oh, this is what was happening yes. now. You actually unfold that really uh, interesting and fattening for, interestingly, fattening for Gabon uh, because you have the the the, the main character, um, uh, uh, Kachikpa. 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 Um, <laughs> You're he, doing very well. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You. You're so kind, Kuom. <laughs> I've always known that about you. You're kind and you have an amazing laugh. Um, so the 12-year-old boy that we have as our main um, narrator, and it's in mm-hmm. first person, so we have mm-hmm. the eye voice. We're right immediately there with him. And he's got a five-year-old sister, mm-hmm. uh, Yua. And, um, so, but, but we see him um, come kind of have this these flashes of greater understanding as the story progresses because he's believing everything that Mm -hmm. his uncle is telling him Mm -hmm. um and then and then he's gradually starting to realize that the pieces of this are are not really as he's saying and who can you Mm -hmm. trust and i'm not sure there's um let's see the first line of that i don't know if you know it off the top of your head um but um, could you read the first two lines, maybe, just so that people have a, a grounding in this story? <laughs> okay. I'll do anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try to pronounce things better. <laughs> selling your child or nephew could be more difficult than selling other kids. You had to keep a calm head or be as ruthless as the Badagri semi-immigration people. If not, it could bring trouble to the family. What kept our family secret from the world in the three months Fofokui planned to sell us were his sense of humor and the struggler's instinct he had developed as an agbero, a tout, at the border. Thank you, Um. um you're listening to Living Writers. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. This is Living Writers. Today, Uum Akpan and his collection, Say You're One of Them. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, I'm so glad that um, you're here today, Uum. Thanks, for, <laughs> thanks again for coming and being on the program. It's a wonderful way to hang out. <laughs> With everybody eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're a busy man. I know. You should have taken me out to dinner, to lunch, to celebrate. That's true. Yeah. This is some celebration. I'm still making you work, right? Like, this is still, hopefully not. Hopefully it's not too much like work. But um, anyway, um, so so we've been talking, Um, about... um, 
uh, in the collection, the narrators and the voices, um, mostly first person, um, and one story told in second person with the you, um, but all all like children's voices, young young voices, and um, was that symbolic in a way? Like, did you also want? Because there's so many things that you're showing us in the stories that are still honestly sinking in. Because like, mm-hmm. I know it'll be uh, there'll be stories that I'm mulling over for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, of course. Um, but there, there's sometimes it feels like there are moments in the story where they could be seen as hopeless. Like when um, mm-hmm. the in the final story, when the father, uh, well, I don't want to give things away if people haven't. It seems like there's no return. Like people who love one another are even killing each other because of their allegiances. And um, or or in Nigeria, uh, your your home country with the the north and south, there being such a division um, because historically the country was um, created just borders drawn around it by Britain. And so, um, the Muslim people and the Christians of the South Southern Delta having to coexist. And, um, so, so there's all these, uh, uh, these, these conflicts. And so there can be these moments